And if we do hit net zero emissions, we expect to stop warming the planet. At the moment, we're warming the planet about 0.1 to 0.2 degrees Celsius per decade. We've already warmed the planet overall about 1.2 degrees Celsius relative to pre-industrial levels. Um, we're going to keep warming it as long as we keep emitting greenhouse gases more than we draw down carbon from the atmosphere. Um, if we get to net zero, we, we stop warming the planet. If we can go negative with our greenhouse gas emissions, um, so we're actually taking up more than we're emitting, then we start cooling the planet. And that opens up really exciting opportunities if we can get to that point. Hello and welcome to the Plant Paradigm Podcast, where we have inspiring conversations with amazing individuals from all around the world and look for ways to create a clean, green and sustainable future, us, the planet and all beings. I'm your host, Tom Simak, a fellow plant eater and athlete who is here to facilitate those inspiring conversations. In a few days time, the monthly paradigm email will be going out to everyone that's on the I guess Plant Paradigm email subscriber list. It is a monthly debrief on one key highlight of the month on three different topics, health, the environment, and veganism. If you haven't yet joined the gang over there, head to theplantparadigm.com and put in your email address. Now on to today's conversation. It is with climate researcher, Dr. Andrew King. Andrew is a senior lecturer in climate science at the School of Geography, Earth, and Atmospheric Sciences and ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate Extremes at the University of Melbourne. Dr. King's work has been cited hundreds of times and his research has also been published in top journals like Nature. As you can imagine, we're gonna be talking about climate change today, the future of society, transitioning to a green economy, utilizing these renewable energies, how we can stay under 1.5 degrees, and if Andrew even thinks that is realistic at this stage, climate scientist, vegetarian or vegan, and we're going to touch on media and the news industry and their role in all of this. I think this was a really powerful episode and I think everyone who's into the realm of climate science and climate education will really take a few key things out of this conversation that they can go on to their friends and family and then continue on educating society so we can start looking forward to this greener society that we talked about on today's episode. With that being said, I will see you on the other side. Dr. Andrew King, welcome to the Plant Paradigm Podcast. How are you going? Good. Thanks for having me. An absolute pleasure. We um, were chatting a bit before the recording went live and I've got to say, growing up, I used to think this kind of stuff was super boring, like meteorology, like really nerdy. And I guess in a certain way it is. Um, but there's so much to be excited about in terms of what the future looks like. Because I don't know about you, but I almost seldom think there is another industry out there where the future is so uncertain. Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, we have very changeable weather and we've got this background change going on with the planet. Because of our greenhouse gas emissions, we're changing the climate, which means we're changing the weather that we experience. So we've got that variability and we've got changes going on. It's very hard to tell what's going to happen 
in the next few decades in terms of like extreme weather events we might experience. So even though it's quite a nerdy pursuit, it's quite, um, I, I think it's quite an interesting, exciting area to be in. And definitely noble, um, especially when this is one of the industries where it actually impacts a lot of lives, especially when it comes to, like you mentioned, actually measuring and tracking these events. Like that's, that's a really big deal. Like if we look at like where we are, we're in Australia. Recently we had these horrific floods that plagued Lismore and the surrounding regions in the future, or even I'm not sure how it went this time. Is that something we're able to predict? Um, we can predict to some extent on short time scales whether we're going to get these severe weather events. So, um, for example, this past um, summer we did see lots of severe flooding along the east coast of Australia. And because we had a La Nina event, which is where we have uh, warmer waters in the West Pacific Ocean, that um, increases the odds of having uh, extreme rain conditions over much of Australia. Um, so we kind of already knew in advance we were likely to see some flood events. Um, but then actually predicting when these events will occur and where these events will occur is quite hard. Um, so they can usually pre be predicted a, f a few days out to some extent and then a few hours out with more accuracy. Um, but we do need to kind of improve our ability mm. to forecast really extreme rain events especially. Uh, what kind of technology do you need to even forecast that kind of stuff, especially as that kind of technology, if the greenhouse gas emissions aren't curbed anytime soon, which they may or may not be, that's arguable, mm. these, it's going to need a drastic upgrade really soon. And especially if you think, that, from my understanding, what's happening in South Africa and their weather patterns actually eventually makes its way through to Australia and everything to predict weather, you have to know what's going on around the world. So what kind of utopic systems are we going to need to predict this kind of stuff? Um, so we, we do have global weather prediction models. Um, so this is where we basically divide up the atmosphere into lots of boxes and we model the movement of air and um, other properties of the atmosphere between these boxes and we predict what's going to happen next. Um, so we do track the weather systems as they come from our west, from places like South Africa and then cross the southern Indian Ocean and eventually reach southern Australia. Um, and, and yeah, we can predict with reasonable accuracy a few days in advance these weather systems. Uh, the problem we have with a lot of severe weather types is that um, they occur on quite small spatial scales or over quite short times, mm. especially extreme rain events. So if you think of these kind of thunderstorm events where you can get really torrential rain and really bad flooding, um, they tend to occur, you know, on timescales of minutes to maybe a few hours. And, you know, you may get a storm over you in one place, but then 10 k's or 20 k's away, there isn't a storm there. It's actually dry. And predicting where those storms will be is really hard because, you know, just a small error in the prediction means you could have flooding in a different river in a different basin. Mm. Um, so it's really it's really quite hard to, to predict these events with high accuracy more than a few hours in advance. 
And with the Lismore floods, especially the second round of severe floods um, were due to a major storm cell coming across. That was quite hard to predict. And it did take some people by surprise right. as a result. So in terms of kind of what we need, um, we, we, we kind of need our models to continue improving. Um, we need to kind of shrink these grid cells, these boxes in the atmosphere that we um, model at so to actually simulate the storms mm -hmm. uh, better and to simulate their tracks a bit better. Right. So... What kind of had me thinking while you're talking about, because it's, it's meteorologists, I think, are the large part that make these predictions and not one, two, but like a group. Mm. What I'm curious about is essentially you run it off an algorithm or a calculation or, or some sort of system. Now, that's based on someone's calculation. And if that were to go wrong, is there some sort of table for the meteorologist or that team to be liable for, for errors in calculations? So it's, these models are kind of based on established um, science and it doesn't really, the, the, the equations that are used are never wrong. They're just oh, cool. kind of standard sets of equations, um, you know, including things like um, Newton's second law of motion. So force equals mass times acceleration. And then a whole set of kind of more complicated equations. Um, so... That's not the kind of thing that goes wrong. It's more that the atmosphere is kind of chaotic. You know, just a small change can make a big change down the track. And that mm -hmm. just means it's quite hard to make really accurate predictions. And I think on the whole, people understand this. You know, there's um, a, an appreciation that it's, it is hard to, to predict extreme weather events, especially like heavy rain events. Um, so we haven't really seen meteorologists be kind of held to account for, for poor forecasts. Um, it would be very hard to, you know, it's never deliberate and it's yeah. never, um, it's just because it's quite a complicated thing to try and do in the first place. Um, but yeah, we, I mean, in other fields of science, we have seen um, attempts to make uh, scientists, hold scientists liable for for poor predictions or um, lack of prediction. So we saw that with an earthquake in Italy um, quite a few years ago, for example. It was very controversial. So there is, um, because there is so much um, cost associated with extreme events, we need to be able to predict them well. But I think most people understand it's, it's hard and you know, we're, tr we're trying our best. Mm, yeah, for sure. I think certain fields, to be fair, need that scrutiny. But one field such as meteorology, where there's so much, what, what you seem there's lots of extraneous variables. There's just mm. one. It's like that joke: one butterfly could mm. change. You know, that little swell they make with their wings and changes their pattern and air pattern, and kind of goes on like that. But there's a lot I wanted to touch on. And first, since we're in Melbourne, I wanted to. <laughs> Kind of see what your take is on the common saying that Melbourne's a bit of a four seasons one day place where you need to walk outside with your raincoat, umbrella, beach gear and winter coat. Is that normal? Is, is like given where we are in the world, or I guess, polar, I'm not sure what exactly makes an influence on that. Or is that something that is unnatural? Um, 
Well, it's not unnatural. So it's it's a good question. That we lots of places claim to have four seasons in a day. Um, I think Melburnians are quite proud of the, the weather that we have here. <laughs> I mean, it is quite un- unusual, but it's not, um, you know, l- lots of parts of the world, especially in kind of um, away from the equator, but also away from the North and South Pole, have weather that can be very hot or very cold and sometimes changes quite quickly. Melbourne, though, um, experiences quite quick changes sometimes. So we've all experienced, especially in summer, those cold fronts where it can be like, you know, 30, 35, 40 degrees. And then a front comes through and, you know, it's dropped well below 20 and, you know, you're freezing. Yes. You're out in like summer gear. So um, it's definitely, um, you know, those are quite big changes. Yeah, I mean, lots of parts of the world do experience quite changeable weather. Right. Um, It is like a natural part of Melbourne's weather, though. So even if we hadn't influenced the climate, if we hadn't pumped out greenhouse gases, we would still have very changeable weather in Melbourne. It'd be a bit cooler, but it would be very changeable still. Right. Yeah, well, I've always been so curious about that, whether it's something just unnatural because i you know you go up to gold coast and it's just not generally like that it's like melbourne or maybe yeah i didn't know other place in the world had that but i guess that makes a lot of sense you mentioned greenhouse gases and that's a lot of the kind of rage these days especially with the australian election you know a lot of people are saying the result was because of the strong climate pledges of certain parties we've got this huge battle which is to get this net zero that everyone is plastering on billboards and in their campaigns and in as their goal like this ultimate accolade you mentioned before we started recording so you've been working on something surrounding net zero do do you mind sharing what you're doing there yeah so most of our climate projections are based on uh, model simulations where we keep emitting greenhouse gases Um, so we we tend to look what the climate will look like in, say, 2050 or 2100 under different greenhouse gas emission scenarios, maybe quite high emission scenarios or lower ones. But we don't really focus on net zero. We don't really focus on what actually would happen if we do get to net zero or even go slightly negative with um, net greenhouse gas uh, emissions. And that's something that we need to know because we're aiming for net zero emissions. Mm-hmm. Australia is aiming for net zero emissions by 2050, um, and we're not alone in that goal. Um, globally, overall, I think we'd be hoping that we hit net zero emissions um, not too far beyond 2050. And if we do hit net zero emissions, we expect to stop warming the planet. At the moment, we're warming the planet about 0.1 to 0.2 degrees Celsius per decade. We've already warmed the planet overall about 1.2 degrees Celsius relative to pre-industrial levels. Um, We're going to keep warming it as long as we keep emitting greenhouse gases more than we draw down carbon from the atmosphere. Um, If we get to net zero, we we stop warming the planet. If we can go negative with our greenhouse gas emissions, um, so we're actually taking up more than we're emitting, then we start cooling the planet. And that opens up 
really exciting opportunities if we can get to that point. It requires some technological advances beyond where we're at now. But if, you know, all the policy is around getting to net zero. Um, so if we can get there, we can even go net negative, we can cool the planet and we can kind of target a specific temperature. Um, maybe we try and go back to pre-industrial levels. Maybe mm. we say, well, we've actually adapted to a slightly warmer climate so we can cope with half a degree or a degree above pre-industrial levels. Depends. There's um, an interesting debate that's going to unfold over the coming decades as we um, get closer and closer to reaching net zero emissions. And um, it's something that requires some thinking now because what a future climate looks like beyond net zero emissions depends on our current greenhouse gas emissions and how... Um, how much global warming we get to at its peak. Um, we need to keep that as low as possible. We need to really reduce our emissions as quickly as possible um, and keep a lid on global warming as much as possible um, to avoid kind of the most dangerous climate change impacts. Mm, you know, definitely. I think what's really fascinating is, you're right, there's no real... You know, what do we do once we get net zero? Like we're going to have to, if we achieve net zero, well, right now we can see around us, you know, India going through insane heat waves and famines, Mozambique getting plastered with different things. We're threatened with our coffee because coffee needs a certain temperature and you take people away from their coffee, everyone's going to go insane. So where we are at the moment, and even if we stagnate and we don't emit any more carbon, it's still causing a plethora of problem problems globally like we're mm. seeing what's happening just up north at the great barrier reef even through mm. a la nina yeah it's still bleaching 91 percent of the reef like that is absolute insanity for something that should be uh good so my question and point in all this what do you see life looking like once we hit net zero and then what do you see life looking like again once we start to reducing it because i'm assuming what we're doing day to day how we're getting to work, what we're eating, certain things are going to have to change. What does the everyday person do in a net zero world? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I don't think it's something we've thought much about. In order to get to net zero, we, we're going to have to change how our economy works and how society works. It will be completely decarbonized by definition almost. Um, we're already seeing that we, we can envisage what that might look like in some sectors more easily than others. So in terms of electricity generation, it will be entirely renewable, um, maybe in some countries, possibly with nuclear power, but there will be no coal, oil or gas. Um, but in other ways, it's kind of harder to envisage um, what a net zero world might look like. Um, it will likely involve us eating less meat and having maybe, um, you know, certainly a, a more vegetarian diet or, or maybe smaller amounts of meat or fish. Um, it, in terms of um, transportation, it will look different. We'll have, we need to have more fuel efficient planes. We'll need to be using electric cars and electric vehicles where possible. Um, 
you know, and there's all sorts of other sectors which will have to uh, decarbonize as well. Um, in terms of net negative emissions, we're going to be needing to have technology that allows us to really take carbon down from the atmosphere. Some net negative um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions are where we're taking down more carbon might be through land use changes, so through planting more trees. Mm. But it can't be in a way that's not sustainable. It has to be in a way that doesn't use up too much land that we need for for crop growing. And it also can't be in a way that um, the trees are allowed to then burn in a fire. Mm. So um, it, it's, it has to be in a way that's kind of sustainable and resilient to wildfire, bushfire risk. Um, so it's there's different ways we can... Uh, get to net zero or net negative, but it will involve quite drastic changes from the way society works currently. This um this is really exciting because a lot of people, and as soon as you started talking about all the things we're going to have to change, which I couldn't agree more of, people are always threatened when you bring up renewable energy or you bring up changing the way we live, saying, oh, you're taking away our jobs that's a really big thing, especially with this coal, gas, fossil fuel sector in, in total. But what we're describing here sounds like you're rebuilding civilization almost in a new light, new technology. You're going to need more innovations in the aerospace sector, in the general vehicle sector, in the agriculture sector. Almost every single sector are going to need technicians, going to need like the fact that people are scared of their jobs and we're saying we're going to re-innovate the whole thing is like almost like a green industrial revolution. Mm. And I don't really see a threat to workers or jobs. I see more opportunities. And I don't know if that's just my optimism, but based on my research and what we need, I don't see a threat to anyone's livelihood if proper jobs are transferred to new industries. Do you? Um, so overall, I think there will be a lot of jobs in this green revolution, definitely. Um, as you were describing, we need big technological advances, which requires a lot of research, a lot of new manufacturing. Um, so there's plenty of opportunities. Um, to be fair, there, will, there are currently jobs that exist that won't exist mm -hmm. in, a, in a future where we're at net zero. And it's you know, it, it's perfectly reasonable for people to be worried about their livelihoods. If they're in mm -hmm. an area, in, in a job which isn't really um, consistent with a net zero emissions future, um, we do need um, a plan to retrain people, to reskill people who are in jobs which... Um, are just incompatible with a, a net zero future. So it, it's. I think it is completely fair for individuals to be worried if if um, if their jobs are in areas which just won't exist in a couple of decades' time. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you. There's lots of exciting opportunities, and I think um, we see like young people today. Um, are really aware of this. We don't really see young people moving into 
um, jobs that will be jobs of the past um, in the not too distant future. We're seeing lots of people here at you know University of Melbourne and plenty of other places as well. Um, lots of our students really wanting to work in renewable energy, wanting to work in green manufacturing, um, you know, and and also on the research side, developing kind of new materials that um, help us to decarbonize our society. So lots of exciting opportunities, but it is fair for people to be concerned as well. Yeah, that's a very compassionate answer, Andrew. That's, yeah, I, I get it, but I always say, like, no one's crying for the the guy that used to make the wooden wheels for the horse carriages, and, and hopefully they were transferred. But in a, in a good example, I guess, somewhere close to home, WA's closing up their logging. I'm not sure if you heard, but they're closing up all their logging by December 20... Ne- next year, I believe it is. And so the government's gone and given uh, the workers... They've devoted $15 million, um, and that is to retrain all the workers and to pay their salaries up until they find new work, which is a fantastic yeah. real-life example somewhere close to home and somewhere I'm sure lots of countries should kind of look to, and I'm sure they're not the first to think of something like that. It's not revolutionary. Um, but as a climate scientist, someone who's in the industry, do you look at a certain country or nation and think, yeah, those guys are doing it right or they're going in a really good direction or are you kind of like everyone needs like a kick? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, so many small island states and um, developing countries, you know, which aren't really responsible for mm-hmm. our greenhouse gas emissions to date uh, are already doing okay. Like they're not, you know, they already have um, kind of good plans for the future. They really want to keep global warming to very low levels um, because it tends to be the poorest countries that are suffering the most and those low, low-lying island states in the Pacific, in the Indian Ocean. Um, so they're doing the right thing broadly. Um, in terms of the big emitters... So countries like the US, China, um, groups of countries like the European Union, um, you know, some are doing better than others. Uh, In Europe, there's definitely more um, ambition around reaching net zero emissions than there is in um, some other countries. Um, I wouldn't say, though, that any of the big emitters are you know, doing a a wonderful job. Like they're all, um, there's room for lots of improvement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're all signed up to the Paris Agreement, you know, to try and keep global warming to very low levels. Um, They do have plans in place that go towards us maybe keeping global warming below two degrees, just about. But it does require more effort. And as you pointed out, you know, we've had... We're at 1.2 degrees global warming now. We're seeing bleaching on the on the Great Barrier Reef in a La Nina year. Um, we're already in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, we need to act as quickly as possible um, because we're already experiencing unprecedented extreme events that are severely damaging ecosystems and worsening people's lives uh, as well. So, not. No, no big emitter is 
doing as much as they could be. But um, in the last few years, we've seen lots of countries moving in the right direction, including um, the US um, since the change of government there. And, to you know, Australia is also just... Um, uh, announced stronger emissions reduction plans and that's great it's not enough for us to be consistent with um, keeping global warming below one and a half degrees we need to do a lot more but it's a good starting point mm, yeah i've got to reward the small steps but not lose sight of the true goal here which is mm-hmm. to avoid our suffering really mm. Um, now, you mentioned the Paris Agreement. That's something I found really fascinating, how countries have come and kind of some have made a fool of themselves, Australia included in that batch, and then others have really kind of taken that, but none have really gone above and beyond. And when I'm just reading about the cops and, and what's happening there, I kind of feel like someone's, they're all waiting for a leader. Like mm-hmm. no one's really stood up and be like, like, the big version of Bhutan, like they're carbon negative, I believe, not that they have any big industry, but someone's someone's waiting for something to happen, something big to occur. What do you see that cops need? Like what's the kick in the butt? Um, yeah, I think you're right, by the way. I, I do think um, a lot of countries are looking, have looked for um, to maybe the US, maybe Europe, um, maybe China for leadership, and they haven't really seen it mm. uh, properly. Um, I think I think they have, they are being given that kick up the butt, really, because, you know, the public in lots of countries around the world are, are really worried about climate change. We've seen that mm-hmm. in Australia recently um, with the change of government, but we've also seen that, we, we also see that in other countries as well. So I think governments are moving, governments know that um, they need to respond to the problem better than they have been, and they are trying to do that. I think the one issue with climate change is that there's always, you know, it's viewed as a long-term issue, and there's always kind of short-term problems that come up and divert attention, and some of them, some of the possible solutions to those shorter term problems uh, sometimes at odds with um, the longer term goal of decarbonizing our economy. So for example, um, with uh, the you know crisis that's going on in, in Ukraine, um, homegrown energy uh, resources are, are you know, seen as a positive, definitely more of a positive. And there's discussion of opening more oil fields in, in the North Sea, for example, or, um, you know, even I've, some people suggesting reopening coal mines in Western Europe. And obviously that would reduce dependence on energy imports from, from Russia, but it doesn't help the long-term goals of... Mm-hmm. of um, limiting global warming so we need to be thinking about how to make our um, our society and our economies more resilient so that um, we um, don't suffer as much when we have these kinds of shocks these events but equally um, we move towards decarbonizing as quickly as possible 
And indeed, if we had higher dependence on renewable energy in Western Europe, there would be less of a need for those Russian imports. So, um, but that's it's harder to build that capacity very quickly. Hundred percent. There's so much change that needs to happen. I mean, one change I know that Australia and I think Europe especially needs to um, uh, employees if they're gonna use fossil fuels, actually having storage solutions so that in a future situations such as this they don't need to rely on import they don't need to rely on exports they don't even need to rely on drilling more oil because they have this uh compulsory reserve they must keep and that would help in a sort of energy crisis like this but i want to touch on the decarbonization that's a really complicated field because i mean let's look at the ipcc we can see okay like roughly 29 percent is attributed to like the building sector stuff like steel concrete we've got 18 percent agriculture i think it's like Uh, 10% of transport and so forth so forth there's a lot of categories and within that category is even more categories so where do you think of course this is going to be different nation to nation but what is the low-hanging fruit that we should potentially address first or look at first maybe somewhere where the technology is already available for that change to take place Um, I think the really the, the big areas where we do already have the technology are the electricity generation obviously like we we know how to um, generate electricity uh, from solar power wind hydro electricity as well and we we have had that technology for a long time now it's improved as well um, there's basically no excuse not to really you know really really push hard to switch to renewable uh, electricity generation um, we're, we're seeing as well at the moment uh, this boom in electric cars and that's exciting mm. um, I, I think that can go a bit harder like we could have more um, uh, more ambitious targets around switching to electric cars um, do you or, see a problem with like the mining side of things how do you think about that whole mining cobalt and manganese and that kind of stuff uh, well, uh, so we will always still need some of these precious metals, mm-hmm. um, but we can do this in a more sustainable way mm-hmm. and a more um, climate-friendly way. There's going to be a whole range of improvements in technology needed for different sectors. You mentioned um, construction, concrete, for example. We, we need to find solutions where we develop technology that allows us to keep building we could, we need to be able to build things but in a, a carbon neutral way um, so um, that needs to be developed we don't have that yet really on scale at least uh, we need to be able to develop that um, asap so we need a, a kind of a whole range of different solutions there is there is definitely lower hanging fruit in some areas definitely electricity generation for example mm-hmm. but um, in other areas, we need to pursue technologies that allow us to decarbonize as quickly as possible. Um, but, you know, uh, humans are very um, innovative when we need to be, and the world changes quite quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to predict in 20 or 30 years' time how these industries will look. Um, but we do, they need to be more energy efficient at, at the very least, and 
preferably carbon neutral if, if possible. Mm, energy efficiency is a great way to really tackle a lot of things because energy efficiency is a big father category in the way that I look at it. I mean, energy efficiency could be putting green roofs on buildings so that less uh, heating or cooling is needed because it's better insulated, actually properly retrofitting buildings with these new LED lights instead of the iracandescent. Mm-hmm. I always struggle with that one. Doing these kinds of things I've always found to be really low-hanging fruit and it blows my mind that there aren't more initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually even read in Melbourne they're building the first climate it was like carbon negative building ever. And the whole building is going to be plated with solar panels. Mm. And I'm like, that is insane. It's going to cost something like 25 million, like a stupid amount of money. And it, But that's just cool stuff that humans can really come up with. And like you say, when, when our back's against the wall, that's when I'm imagining in my mind we're actually going to stay under the 1.5. I think we'll get to like 1.49. And then humans will decide, all right, that's too many people are dying now. People are losing their livelihoods let's turn it around that's kind of how i see it going down oh i'm less less optimistic i think um i think we're going to go through 1.5 yeah um i think if we work really really hard we'll stay below two degrees global warming and Mm -hmm. we'll hopefully be able to come back down fairly quickly from our peak level if we really implement net negative emissions technologies um but, you know, until recently, if you asked most climate scientists, where are we heading in terms of global warming? I think most would have said nearer three degrees global warming. Mm. Um, we have seen this increased ambition with the Paris Agreement. And since then, um, you know, with the COP meeting in Glasgow uh, last year, we are seeing our leaders need to do more, but they are moving in the right direction. Um, so I think there is a bit more optimism, but I, I'm not as optimistic that we'll stay below one and a half. I, I think it's unlikely we'll stay below one and a half. Mm. And it's just, a, it's just a matter of people aren't listening to the science because I've, I heard my friend say this once, and I'm like, isn't that so true? When COVID kind of first occurred, the governments were like, all right, what does the science say? They're like this, we have to know what to do, how to tackle it. Do we, are we wearing masks? What are we doing with the lockdowns? How are we addressing this issue? And then when it comes to the climate emergency, we're like, nah, for a long time, it was climate denial. Mm. And now it's like, oh, well, we're not denying it. It's like that tobacco kind of um, media play. And we're just not listening to the science, I feel. And I think you might relate a bit more about that than I do, especially with the recent news. Like, yes, we have the film, like, Don't Look Up that came out, we were just talking about before. And then a few months after there is a release, a climate scientist sets himself on fire because all I hear about is interviews of climate scientists saying, I got into this field to make the world better, but then I realise nobody gives a crap, nobody's listening, or the right people aren't listening. The everyday people, yes, are. And there is this change, which I will admit, Ten years ago, was a lot less prominent, I think. And you've mm. been in the you've been in the industry for thirteen years. Well, you've been studying for a while. Mm. How have you seen the shift? And how frustrated are you when it comes to like news outlets? Um, well, okay. Well, I mean, firstly, there's quite a lot of variability between news outlets. Like some are better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is. It's definitely frustrating. Um, we see 
extreme weather events that are being exacerbated by climate change and having huge impacts. And, you know, we we go on TV or we go on the radio and we explain this and, you know, we can say things like, you know, climate change is worsening this heat wave. We're going to get, you know, 50 degree days in Sydney and in Melbourne in within the next few decades. Um, we're going to see the loss of the Great Barrier Reef. And it kind of feels like, you know, these are really big, I mean, especially the loss of the Great Barrier Reef. This is, you know, uh, an ecosystem that was once extremely diverse and was uh, something that Australia was very proud of. And we're basically killing it. And you kind of go on the media and say this and it kind of feels like no one's listening, like people move on very quickly to some other news story. Um, and it is quite disconcerting that it kind of sometimes feels like people don't really care that we're we're losing a, you know a really important ecosystem in the case of the Great Barrier Reef or we're really changing the planet um, you know beyond recognition in some ways and it's definitely quite sad that I, I think most climate scientists kind of build up um, a bit of have to build a bit of apathy in a sense to to what they're saying because it it's really depressing often um, what we're reporting what we're finding and it's incredibly sad that people often don't seem to care and the other thing that's frustrating is when sometimes we have extreme weather events like heat waves which um, we know are one of the biggest killers in Australia in terms of natural disasters. We get far more deaths from heat waves than we do from flooding, for example. For humans? For humans in yep. Australia. Um, and, you know, we'll go on TV and we'll talk about these, you know, extreme record high temperatures that different parts of Australia may be experiencing um, and, and how climate change is making them worse and how, you know, these are really big problems, but they're often coupled with images of people playing on the beach or people, you know, really enjoying the sun. But that's kind of sending the wrong message. Like these are deadly events and there are people really suffering, especially elderly people or very young people, um, very young children who um, are more susceptible to heat stroke and, and heat related illnesses and you know we see spikes in mortality in hospital admissions during heat waves and yeah it feels like that's because it's not really visible that those people are dying because of heat and climate change is likely increasing the number of people who are dying because of heat because it's not really visible, people don't really seem to care or maybe don't comprehend the, the, the problem. Um, so it's that's another kind of frustrating aspect of being a climate scientist and, and um, talking to the media. 
Um, there's also kind of a general issue that some media take climate change more seriously than others. Um, yeah. Mm, it's it's hard. It's like you can't stamp someone with a uh, cause of death climate change. Mm. You can't do that. And you're right, there's so much that becomes affected, not just heat waves, but like I was talking about before we or maybe it was during the recording about the coffee beans and how that's going to affect 27 million livelihoods, these people. And what about the ones in Nepal, that their sustenance farming's getting ruined because of the floods that are coming through and not even mentioning the Madagascar famine and, and all these certain things. That the deaths via climate change are just going to overtake the deaths via undernourishment and these certain huge... And I'm not even sure if a certain amount of undernourishment is due to climate change and limited crop deaths. Like the amount of people that are dying due to malnutrition is absolutely staggering. It was something like a thousand children a minute. Like it's some stupid number like that. And you kind of have to think, what do you need? Because what does society need to really take this seriously? And when I'm talking society, I have a certain, yes, individuals can do a fair bit. I think more than what we choose to accept credit for i think the mentality of i can do nothing because i'm one person is incredibly toxic and not necessary here but i don't know i I always think who is needed to do this like who is the martin luther king of this issue and yes we can look at greta thunberg and then we see okay nobody listens to her they clap like oh greta let's get a selfie you know but nobody's really following through with making these real changes and the more i talk about it and i've i've kind of made that decision to not call it climate change but a climate crisis is because i think there's there's three levels right there's people who underestimate and there's people who roughly get it pretty good and there's the people who really understand it and think like alarm bells you need to wake up with those alarm bells sounding every day and that's super doomsday and i hate to think like that but the more i get educated on the topic the more i think that's kind of what it what it's like like it's you feel like there's just alarm bells and you have this certain level of climate anxiety especially if you're aware and i'd imagine those like yourself working in the field have a very severe case of this anxiety yeah i i think i think that's true i think um to be honest, I think many scientists become kind of numb to it because mm. you basically have to to keep going in this area. It's, um, yeah, it's it's hard to you can't really be anxious all the time. So, um, yeah, it's I, I think you're broadly right. Like it's definitely. It, it feels like the people who understand the most are the most alarmed. I think there are some instances where people are too alarmed, or, or sometimes yeah. um, not not many, but there's definitely instances that we see. Subpopulation. There's a very small fraction of the population that is like, you know, imagining things really, really, really bad. Um, you know beyond our well beyond our predictions um, kind of like that movie 2012 if you've ever seen that yeah i saw it ages ago where so like tsunamis are just coming and taking over cities and everyone has to get into their bunker and yeah i mean that's you know so this is not uh, yeah the, some of these 
disaster scenarios are, are not realistic either. But I mean, the reality is bad enough. You mm -hmm. know, we are projecting much worse heat waves, much more frequent, more intense heat waves, the loss of the Great Barrier Reef, um, m more intense bushfires, more frequent bushfires, um, more droughts in many places, more extreme rain and flooding in many places, and a lot of sea level rise and coastal inundation. And that's, you know, that's bad enough. Mm -hmm. All of those things are bad enough. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, what keeps me going is that we are moving towards very slowly moving towards getting on the right track mm -hmm. um, we're still our greenhouse gas emissions are way too high still and they're still just about near record highs globally mm -hmm. we need to bring them down very quickly but the we, we are turning the corner we are um, seeing more people concerned about climate change we're seeing more leadership um, so you know, there There's is a glimmer of hope there. There is a glimmer of hope, exactly. So part of the hope for me is knowing that, like I said at the beginning, individuals have an opportunity to do everyday things to reduce their carbon footprint and however big or small that may be, an impact is an impact. And you mentioned earlier that one of those solutions is reducing our meat intake. Now, most people who listen to this, we talk about it quite a bit. We can't ignore the fact that agriculture plays an enormous part of our lives, whether that's those really carbon intensive, whatever food that's flown by aviation or whether that's a food that takes up a lot of resources such as uh, beef or dairy or pork, these high carbon intensive foods. What is the understanding between, cli I guess, climate scientists when it comes to this field? Because I know it's very triggering for a lot of people when you try to change what they know and i guess there is an understanding within your field of we know that we need a change so there's less of that triggeringness or more of that wokeness but how do climate scientists or at least people in your atmosphere feel about things like vegetarian or plant predominant mediterranean diets even hmm. yeah that's a good good question um i think um you know so Many climate scientists are vegetarian, I would say, um, a higher fraction than the overall population. And partly a major motivation for that is, um, you know, we understand that um, eating meat is, uh, well, yeah, l raising livestock is a, a major source of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but, you know, yeah, it, it's... Um, it's also kind of a personal choice as well. So I, th I think most climate scientists don't really talk too much about this or, um, and don't advocate too strongly. Um, but we, we try and just point out the, the things that people can do to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions on the personal scale. Um, I agree that individuals do have power, although... I think our biggest effect is through influencing governments to change policy yeah, I agree. Um, tracks. But in terms of you know things we can do in terms of our own um, lifestyle, I, I think being vegan or vegetarian um, helps a lot. Obviously, uh, yeah, vegan 
is better than vegetarian in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, or certainly at least just reducing meat intake. So if you're eating meat every day, but you know, just going down to once or twice a week makes a big difference as well. So there are steps that people can take um, you know, from their existing um, diet, just making relatively small changes can make mm-hmm. a fairly big difference. Um, I think a lot of, yeah, as I was saying, a lot of climate scientists have um, become veg- vegetarian, I think, in the last uh, few years. Um, I think a lot of them would be excited about the concept of like cellular agriculture and I guess pe- meat that's made in a petri dish that's mm. cellular, just the same as what an animal would be. But the water and land resources are, depending on the study you look at, 97 to 98% less. Mm. So there's a lot of amazing innovation. And it's good to hear that, I mean, less so that there is conversations among peers, and I'm sure there are in some circles, but especially climate scientists, if anyone looks to an example of what it means to be climate friendly, and I don't know if you'd agree, I look at like a lot of metadata analysis and even our world in data.org, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but I would argue to a vegetarian that I would almost prefer them to be a vegan with chicken because of if you're looking at a purely environmental standpoint because dairy is such a mammoth of an emitter because one dairy cow needs at least two acres by law of land let alone the water used so i always find it fascinating like ethically and healthily that's a different conversation but i always find it funny that i forgot which climate scientist i was speaking to like yeah i'd prefer someone to be a vegan and have their chicken instead of a vegetarian that cons- uh, consumes m- the average or slightly more than the average person would in dairy. Mm. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I think, um, I mean, we, we don't try to be too uh, strong in what we say people should eat. Yeah, know, People like, don't really like to be told what they should eat. Is that obviously. why you don't like saying it? Um, yeah. pro- probably, yeah. yeah, I think so. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, but yeah, that's a fair point, definitely, that, um, uh, you know, if, if I think in general, if people think about um, or gain awareness and knowledge of mm-hmm. the greenhouse gas emissions associated with different aspects of their diets mm-hmm. and then seek to um, make improvements, I think that's that's a big step. Um Obviously, you know, there's kind of um, health factors as well, of course. So it may not be suitable for everyone to do, you know, to suppress um, or to change their diet with the the only goal being suppressing greenhouse gas emissions as much Mm -hmm. as possible. So it's kind of, there are other factors that people need to consider when... Yeah, it's got, to, got to look at it through a holistic lens exactly. is, is, is yeah. where we're kind of going. Through. Yeah, I love that. Um, a lot of really what I want to talk about, wanted to talk about initially today before um, we're even 50 minutes in and I haven't looked at my dot points is actually weather patterns. Mm. It's something we actually haven't touched on the show before. Um, and I've read recently in some articles about these atmospheric rivers and this stuff that's incredibly confusing to me as a layman i don't really understand how this all works and why that is even relevant to the way that our climate is and even the floods that are happening 
not only in Australia, but from what I understand, atmospheric rivers are literally around the globe. So could you give us a rundown on what they are and how they affect the way we live? Um, before, yeah, before I discuss atmospheric rivers, I'll just take a step back. Mm-hmm. We have um, different weather patterns influence our day-to-day weather. So when we have higher pressure, we tend to have um, drier conditions and sometimes warmer, sunnier weather. Um, when we have lower pressure, we often have um, rain bands, um, like troughs or fronts, where we get bands of rain and, and stronger winds and changes in temperature. Um, so we have these weather systems kind of going around um, in bands around the world, uh, including places over places like Melbourne and southern Australia generally. Um, Atmospheric rivers are a type of weather system where we get kind of a flow of very moist air in the atmosphere, so way um, up above our heads. Um, How high are we talking, by the way? um, Kind of a few kilometres. So not not super high. um, So kind of... Above the clouds? um, So from around... Well, you get different heights of clouds. So right, it's kind yeah. of the lower clouds, <laughs> the heights of the lower clouds up to the the heights of the highest clouds. Yeah, okay. Kind of band. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get this very moist air and it tends to flow from the equator, either side of the equator, so towards mm-hmm. the north and the south poles. Mm-hmm. But it kind of gets deflected by the rotation of, of the Earth. So we get atmospheric rivers typically in the southern hemisphere that come from the equator and um, kind of move southeastwards. And um, they bring often bring heavy rain um, because they interact with other weather systems and result in heavy rain events. And um, during the, the floods in uh, eastern Australia, we saw atmospheric rivers affecting Queensland and New South Wales where we'd have a band of very moist air coming in towards um, the east coast. So actually kind of going the opposite, slightly a different direction to the standard atmospheric rivers and um, interacting with um, kind of lower lower pressure at the surface um, to bring really immense amounts of rainfall. And um, yeah, we think atmospheric rivers contributed to... Um, the, the severe weather, the, the heavy rain that we saw earlier this year. And then looking at that concept, it sounds like a very natural phenomena. Mm. I'm assuming at some level, well, we've put so much CO2 in the atmosphere, the whole global ecosystem has been affected one way or another. Is the global atmos- uh, river atmosphere or river Air, what, do, what do we call it again? The uh, atmospheric rivers. Yeah, atmospheric yeah. rivers. Are, is, are they exacerbated or made more dangerous in this way because of climate change? Hmm. Um, so this is something that's being researched. Um, if we didn't increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, we would still have atmospheric rivers. So if we went back to pre-industrial times, we mm-hmm. would still see these systems. Um, we think um, through modeling the climate and changing the amounts of greenhouse gases in our modeling simulations. We think that um, climate change is uh, 
probably worsening atmospheric rivers, intensifying them so they can carry a bit more moisture. And it's also probably changing the positions of these these uh, systems. Um, but there's a lot of uncertainty. We need to do more research. And it's really important because in Eastern Australia, you know, especially we, we've seen the effects that they mm. can have. They, you know, it's really important that we understand how atmospheric rivers are changing um, in order to understand our future flood risk uh, in places like Lismore or generally across Queens, eastern Queensland and, mm. and New South Wales. Um, but at the moment, we have quite a lot of uncertainty. We think yeah. that they're probably going to become a bit more frequent overall. Mm. Is there a way we can, like, this is sounding super utopic of a question, but, like, send those atmospheric rivers to, like, the desert, like the Australian outback, where there's no rain and it's just drought? Um, no. We can't really intervene um, in on that scale. These are quite major weather systems. Right. So um, we do get atmospheric rivers that bring important rainfall to the desert and to places like... Um, the Murray-Darling Basin. So uh, actually often atmospheric rivers are a good thing. Like, you know, they yeah. bring much needed rainfall in some places, but in other cases they bring severe flooding. So we don't, you know, any kind of uh, change where we tr try and change weather patterns is extremely, well, it's very hard it's also extremely risky. Mm. Um, and, you know, moving, if hypothetically, suppose we were able to move weather systems around where we wanted them to be, so we could move more um, rain-bearing systems over the deserts in Australia, that would probably also affect um, weather systems around the Southern Hemisphere. And it might mean that we cause floods in some other, you know, places. Like we could affect Hemisphere. like South Africa. In if hypothetically, if yeah. we were moving weather systems around, we right. we could be doing that. So, we don't really want to have that kind of influence. Um, you know, there's a whole. This is maybe digressing slightly, but you know, there's a whole area called geoengineering where we think about how we could try and reduce global warming, but without reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. So, w one example of doing this is through. Um, spraying salt uh, from the sea into the atmosphere to develop more clouds and reflect more uh, radiation that's coming in from the sun straight out into space. And, you know, we could probably do this and it would have a slight cooling effect. But just by having that kind of... causing that kind of change could have quite severe unintended consequences. So the the very best thing we can do is just reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and really work yeah. to um, uh, influence the climate less, not in compensating Band-Aids and playing God. <laughs> exactly. and, you know, I did read something that China had this special day of celebration, so they influenced the weather to be sunny or something like that. I forgot the weather they influenced, but they have some sort of system where they... Yeah, so you can do things like cloud seeding, where you try and... Um, uh, basically, if you... 
Clouds form when you have um, particles in the atmosphere that um, water condenses onto. And if you have too many particles, the water gets kind of shared out too much and you don't get clouds forming. So if you spray more particles into the atmosphere, you can suppress, in theory, you can suppress cloud formation. And that's something people have tried to do, um, not just in China, in other mm. places as well, as well, including in Australia in the past. And it's hard to tell if it's worked because we don't know exactly what would have happened if we hadn't done that because mm. we don't have... There's no placebo that, here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no there's no control. Kind yeah. of. So um, it, it probably does work a bit, mm. but it's it's very hard to tell. Awesome. Well, it's coming on the side, the end of the episode. I want to give you a chance to just talk about some myths in the climate area if you know any maybe something that the public commonly believes that is just wives tale if you have any if you don't then i'm happy <laughs> i'm sure there are some i haven't um i need to have a you know like when think. like in in my example like i'm plant-based so i always come across oh but protein though when plants don't have protein that kind of argument mm. that common myth that goes around and i'm sure there's one besides climate denialism I was wondering if there's any other like common things you have to debunk, like common student questions oh. that are like, no, sit back down. Um, there's definitely, yeah, I mean, there's, well, there's kind of standard things that I'm sure um, you've already heard before. So, you know, people will, will sometimes say, you know, we can't predict the weather more than a few days ahead. How can we predict what the climate will look like mm. in a hundred years? Um so there's that kind of thing. And, and the reason we can do that is because if we're looking at the climate in 100 years, we're not trying to predict the exact weather on a given date. In 100 years' time, we're looking at the general conditions, mm -hmm. and those are related to our greenhouse gas emissions predominantly. Whereas in terms of weather patterns, we're interested in when weather events will occur uh, when rain will occur, say, in a few days' time, and that's more dependent on um, the exact positioning of weather systems and, you know, how they track forward in time. And that gets more uncertain the further ahead you go. So we care about different things in terms of weather and climate. Yeah. You don't care if it's 29 on one day and 30 in the next. Exactly, yep. exactly. So um, that's that's kind of the type of myth I encounter quite commonly. I guess another one, which is a bit of a change from previous positioning in terms of climate science, was that we can't attribute any particular extreme weather event to climate change. Mm -hmm. So it used to be said that when we have heat waves, we can't actually say climate change contributed to this event. Um, but the science for that has moved on in the last decade or two. So when we do have heat waves, we know from our analyses of, of um, heat waves in Australia and elsewhere that they're becoming, you know, we, we could say that they're becoming substantially more likely and more intense because of uh, our influence on the climate through our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so that that statement that we can't attribute a specific extreme weather event to climate change isn't really 
true anymore. Equally, we don't say that climate change caused an extreme weather event. Mm. We can say that in the case of extreme heat, climate change greatly increased the likelihood of this event occurring. We can often say that quite quickly after an event. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I guess that's another myth that I encounter quite often. I mean, I'd like to give people a resource to maybe do their own research and tackling myths. Where do you usually point to people as a resource for proper information on climate change? I mean, I usually look at like clim- uh, carbonbrief.org or mm-hmm. I look at the IPCC, these kinds of if you're that's really information heavy Mm. um and yes they do their dot point formats which is generally where i live but they have some really good information are there any other resources that you like to look at for up-to-date information um those are both really good resources carbon brief and the ipcc um i think um things like the conversation uh website is or um you write podcast. the conversation, don't you? I sometimes so do. Any of your articles are good. <laughs> I would say this, but um, but it you know lots of climate scientists write for the conversation, mm-hmm. and there's lots of really good information there. And you know it's been around long enough now that if you've got a specific question, it's probably already been addressed in one of these articles. Um, there are some. I, I mean, I think the main advice I would give is to not just trust everything you read immediately think about the source think about um, the credibility of the experts that are being interviewed or, or have written the article um, so for example um, I saw recently in one news outlet that you know, people were discussing the cold start to winter and the snow and using it to try and debunk uh, the IPCC and human-caused climate change, and they were quoting. I got. I, it's it's silly, yeah. but they were you know quoting people who aren't experts in the yeah. field, quoting um, like climate information from a nutritionist, that kind of thing. No, <laughs> they, were, they weren't quoting nutritionists, but they were quoting um, people who aren't experts or who yeah. may claim to have expertise, but they uh, they don't. So, think about. The qualifications of the the people your um, your your um, media sources are relying on, and um, just yeah, be quite careful in how you interpret those. So, generally, articles from sources like the ABC are broadly good on the whole, and you know the Guardian website is pretty good as well so in australia those are two um fairly strong media outlets for Mm. um your mainstream media outlets for for climate information um we know that um quite often some of the other newspapers including the australian um don't have uh have published um, erroneous articles in the past. And Sky News and mm. uh, Sydney Morning Herald, just to add those two. We don't, we yeah. don't mind name-calling here. Okay. <laughs> um, I would say with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, um, it, uh, leaving aside recent controversies um, generally, um, they, 
many of the climate articles are fine. Mm. Some of them, yeah, maybe historically some of them not so much, but yeah, more, more recently most of them have been fine. I know they've had other controversies mm. at the moment. <laughs> awesome. Uh, look, I want to get uh, one more bit of wisdom from you while we can. Now, we've talked a lot. This episode has kind of gone on many different rails, which I'm really stoked about. But I wanted to give you the opportunity. I like to finish this with all the conversations that I do have with giving you one to two minutes to completely control the platform. I want you to leave us with one more golden nugget, one more word of wisdom that could be relevant to what we talked about today or could be something completely irrelevant, something that's been on your mind um, the last day, uh, day, two, week, or maybe even the work that you are up to that you're really excited about. The stage is all yours for a minute or two, Andrew. Okay. <laughs> how should I best use my minutes? <laughs> Take your time. You can go more than two minutes, okay? It's just how I frame okay. it. Yeah, um, okay, I think... There was actually a really interesting discussion about this on Twitter the last few days. One thing I think many climate scientists have realized is that there are things that are well understood in our field that aren't well understood outside our field. And one that someone pointed out um, is around kind of our greenhouse gas emissions and global warming. If we keep emitting greenhouse gases, we keep warming the planet. So even if we reduce our emissions, say we reduce our emissions 50% next year, that's, I mean, that's not going to happen, yeah. but <laughs> hypothetically yeah. we did, we would still be warming the planet. So I think people don't realize that. We, we need to actually go right down to net zero to stop warming the planet. We could re reduce our emissions 80%. We'd still in the long term, be warming the planet. If we, if we reduced them by 80% and just held them constant, we would still be warming the planet. We need to get to net zero to stop warming the planet, and we need to actually start drawing more carbon out of the atmosphere than we put into it through our, um, our emissions um, to actually start cooling the planet. And I think maybe this isn't, yeah, I've realized that this isn't widely known recently. And that's quite alarming because this is like a fundamental aspect of, of how the climate works. So even though, you know, I was talking about earlier being a bit more optimistic and hopeful given um, recent developments and the fact that we've, we're seeing stronger pledges on emissions reductions, we're talking about something where we're reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the next few years a bit more than we would have been otherwise, but that is still warming the planet. So it's kind of like having, if you have a fire, at the moment we're throwing wood on the fire and the fire's we getting We can just use worse. the word coal since that's a literal... Yeah. <laughs> and if we reduce our emissions, say by 2030, we're talking about reducing our emissions um, now by over 40% in Australia and in other, other countries aiming to reduce their emissions, we are still throwing coal on that fire, just a bit less. So we're still worsening that fire. We're still warming the planet. It's not until we get to the point where we're not throwing coal on the fire, where we're um, 
we're actually just not, you know, we're at net zero. It's only then that the fire stops growing. And then it's only when we start to kind of try and extinguish the fire that the, the problem starts to ease. So we're going to hit our peak global warming when we get to around net zero emissions. So we're, because we're still warming the planet. So we are still, we have a huge amount of work ahead of us. Our greenhouse gas emissions are at just about record high levels. So we are shoveling that coal onto the fire very, very quickly. We're making things much worse very quickly at the moment. We need to turn that around urgently, like uh, as quickly as we can, we need to reduce our emissions to net zero as quickly as possible. Um, it's not something we can push down the track. Um, we have to do this as quickly as possible. Every year, every few years of delay um, means much worse climate change impacts down, down the track, especially in terms of things like sea level rise, which are not really reversible on timescales that we care about. Um, so this is a, like an incredibly urgent problem and we are a very long way from where we need to be. So that's so that was way more than two minutes, but that's it's an important say. two minutes. It felt like it felt like ten seconds because you know it does speak to the it's actually a great way to end the episode because, you know, we've got work to do. We can finish this conversation, take for the audience and all the whole community members, for myself, for yourself, to go back to our friends, our uh, family, our community members, continue this conversation and start educating the public on how we can make a positive change yesterday. You know, Australia has made a huge stride and with the big Brazilian elections coming up, I'm hoping they make another huge stride because they are incredible emitters um, due to their agriculture and logging sector. So there's lots of conversations for us to be had and I think that's a really important take-home message and I wanted to finish up with a thank you. Um, like we mentioned before, climate scientists don't always get a lot of praise so I wanted to extend a personal thank you to yourself, Dr. King, for doing the work that you do, not only the publications that you do put out there, which I've read a few and they're fantastic, but also given that we all have spent this last hour or so with you, I think a lot of us listening are quite confident in the fact that we're glad you're out there teaching students to look at things through a lens that's very intellectual and that can make these positive differences through the research and point us in a direction where we can make these innovations at a very impactful um, level because it is very much needed. We need um, everyone to take the nuggets that you dropped with us today and really continue that continue those conversations um so i really do have a deep thank you for not only coming on the show but for doing the work that you do um if someone wanted to reach out to you is you mentioned twitter is that the best place to go uh twitter or email is fine cool i'll leave both of them in the show notes for someone to get connected with you but thank you again so much for your time today and i'll speak to you soon thanks for having me hi there Welcome to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening and or watching the whole way through. Thank you once again to Dr. King for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Uh, I think it was a super insightful episode and 
I'm really excited for the potential impact that it has given each and every one of you, even if it's one thing that you have taken away, one perspective shift or, or whatever that may be. If you wanted to connect with Dr. King, I've left the links and details on how to do so in the show notes below. But besides that, I hope everyone has an incredible week and I'll see you on next week's episode. Stay happy, eat plants, peace.